0: I'm Ben Horton, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Welcome back to another episode of Undercurrents. I hope you're all well. I hope you're getting into the festive spirit. Christmas is coming. Whether you like it or not, you've got a get on the mince pies and dig out that Christmas jumper from the back of your wardrobe. I haven't found mine yet. I'm sure it still exists, but I don't know, I'll keep you posted. We are delighted to be able to share with you two more interviews this week. We're talking the US-China trade war, but particularly from a tech lens, the quest by these countries for global technological leadership. And we're also joined down the line from Leicester by Zakia Shiraz, who is a recent author in the International Affairs Journal that we publish here at Chatham House. And she is talking about spies in the global south. Hope you enjoy listening. Okay, so now I'm delighted to be joined by two researchers at once to discuss the U.S.-China strategic competition around global technology leadership. So today in the studio, I have with me Marianne Schneider-Petzinger from the U.S. and Americas program at Chatham House, and Yujia from the Asia Pacific program. Thank you both for joining me. Thank,
1: Thank you, for you, Ben. Us.
0: Very exciting. So. We're here today to talk about a research paper that you published recently with Joe Wang and James Crabtree, which is titled US-China Strategic Competition, The Quest for Global Technological Leadership. Obviously, US-China is seen as the big great power rivalry at the moment in the world. But maybe we could just start by going back to the origins of this trade war that's been ongoing for several years now. Marianne, maybe you could just tell us a bit about where this economic competition came from.
2: Well, there is certainly a lot of concerns that the Trump administration, but also previous administrations have raised with regards to the broader economic relationship with China, particularly for the Trump administration. The concern has very much been on the u s s trade deficit with China um If you're looking at that, though, I think President Trump's concern is a bit misplaced because he's so focused on the trade deficit in goods, totally ignoring that the U.S. actually has a trade surplus when it comes to services with China. And then it also ignores that those trade imbalances on a global scale matter, but in bilateral terms, really, you know, trade policy isn't going to address something that's more driven by international savings and investment. So again, perhaps misplaced focus on the U.S.'s trade deficit with China. On another front, the United States has also very much alleged that China is manipulating its currency. That has been one of the concerns over the last 15 years. (laughs) Now, in August of this year, the Treasury Department actually did label China a currency manipulator for the first time in 15 years. Mm -hmm. But I would say that most experts and international organizations like the International Monetary Fund, for example, They do not necessarily share that assessment. They don't think that China currently takes steps to intervene in foreign exchange markets. And then, I guess another concern that again the Trump administration has raised, but previous administrations have also flagged, and is shared internationally as well, is U.S.'s um, or China's rather overcapacity in the steel sector. So here, because of state-owned enterprises or domestic subsidies the Chinese firms just flood the global markets with cheap steel. Mm-hmm. Again, that's been a longstanding concern. And then specifically on those issues of technology, there is concerns about China's theft of intellectual property rights, of forced technology transfer, for example. And again, that is one of the concerns that's been longstanding. standing that is broadly shared also by the U.S.'s allies, where there is also, to some extent, an international attempt to force China to change its practices and policies. And perhaps more largely, some of those concerns specifically by the United States are also driven by China's ambitions to become a global technology leader, and here in particular, China's Made in China 2025 strategy has been a point of contention. So again, a multitude of concerns, but I think that really shows that the current dispute goes beyond the tit-for-tat tariffs and the trade element, but really is about larger issues of technology and this quest for Technological leadership.
0: Mm, thanks, Yuji, Could you maybe give us the Chinese perspective on this? Because Marianne's obviously set out a lot of concerns that the U.S. is feeling, but where does China stand?
1: Sure. Um, I think there are two deeper reasons behind this current round of trade war between the two titans. First, first and foremost, let's every time we're talking about U.S.-China relations, let's look into how Chinese economy has changed. Because so far in the last 40 years of China's economic reform, what we have experienced is we're experiencing by being the world factory, the the world manufacturing hub, Mm -hmm. by producing low-cost manufacturing products and to satisfy global consumers. And of course, China is no longer satisfied just to be the status of the world factory. And China intend to brand itself become a leading force at the global technology sector, so to a large extent, I think it's also' it's to do with China's own economic ambition and China's model of economic transition that has changed and somehow alarmed the United States because ultimately. This, the world's second largest economy, perhaps one day would replace the United States being the number one world largest economy. And the reason for um, the the driving forces behind all of this is the technology development. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the deeper reason is because of China's economic transition, which happening at the same time. And while with the United States, you have a different kind of administration. And then together with American business community, realize it has become much harder to having a profitable business return on investment in the Chinese domestic market. And therefore, they began in line with the U.S. government and filed loads of complaint about the Chinese state and Chinese company's behavior in both Chinese domestic market as well as international market. So I think it's also to do with the Chinese company from mere pupil of the US companies or European companies in the past, mm. in the past 40 years, and it suddenly has now become a formidable competitor with their peers in the past. So I think it's also a deeper psychological reason that American companies will have to adjust for that. That's reason number one. Now, reason number two is if we look back for the historical past, I mean, history always oh, a good lesson to teach for us. Um, just to think about back to late 1950 when china and the soviet union split mm. and the soviet union withdrew um, most of the experts technology experts from china and then china has to had to go through a political campaign of so-called technology reliance and then after 3 years after china developed its own new tech um, nuclear technology mm-hmm. back to 1962 so to some extent i think where we are now is very similar to the story what China had with the Soviet Union in the past. The more the United States decided to curb China in terms of technological development, I think the further that pushed China much harder to pursue this so called technological self reliance strategy. So that's reason number two. Now, reason number three is also to do with China's rising international profile. I mean, it's not just about America. It's also about China's vision of the world, such as the Belt and Road Initiative. So we might see, we might be able to see two parallel international systems. On the one hand, led by United States, based on the so-called liberal international order, whereas on the other hand, we might have international order based on what other countries. Friendly towards China in terms of the belt and road initiative, like what we have talked about in the past, so that's a a much grander reason of this power competition between the two mm-hmm.
0: thanks very much, yeah, so Mariana, I just wanted to pick up on something mean that we just heard about this sense that China has transitioned in its economy and has taken on a more technological element as opposed to just uh, focusing on manufacturing. Could you make the argument that actually the anxieties in the u s are unfounded in the sense that what we're seeing now is just competition. This is what capitalism is about, right? Companies starting that are coming up with newer, more innovative, perhaps, ways of doing things, maybe for a lower price, and that are, in a sense, challenging the established companies or corporations who are already in existence. Is that naive? Or is it actually the case that China is doing things that are kind of beyond what's fair or legal? Or
2: well, I think there's multiple elements that have to be taken into consideration. So I think, again, looking at 2001 with the entry of China into the World Trade Organization, there was initially that big hope that China would become a responsible stakeholder. Mm -hmm. And I think now there is an assessment that's widely shared between the Republican, but also the Democratic Party and the business community in the United States, that that approach has failed. And that there is evidence that indeed, um, you know, China and, and the outsourcing to China did lead to um, a reduction of jobs and wages in the United States, particularly in the manufacturing sector, so that there mm-hmm. has been local displacement that has in part contributed to, again, this narrative that President Trump has very much tapped into on the campaign trail. And um, I think that, again, is is part of the story. The other part of the story is that the international institutions are currently not fit for purpose to deal with some of the challenges that China's rise, but also China's practices and policies present. So if you look again at the World Trade Organization, for example, mm-hmm. when the organization formally came into being in 1995, the Internet really didn't exist. And the rules, again, to deal with issues around e-commerce or digital trade have not been taken forward as quickly as the technologies have developed. So really part of the problem is also that the international rules are currently not there or are not as developed to deal with some of the issues around, again, forced technology transfer, intellectual property theft, but also state-owned enterprises. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that leads me also to a third point, which is the question to what extent, again, the international economic system and governance model is fit to deal with two systems that are starkly opposing. So you did mention, you know, the capitalist kind of market economy driven model of the US. But then in China, you still have very much a non-market economy that is, um, you know, driven by political ideology that, again, is very starkly different from that of the United States. So I think that is also a key part of the dispute that we're currently seeing. And again, it goes back to the question of, Do the international rules that we have are just going to be tweaked to accommodate China? Or do we need to have an international system that actually can accommodate those two starkly different systems?
1: It's quite interesting you mentioned the role of the state-owned enterprises in China. If we actually carefully look at numbers and to see to what extent the SOEs actually play a major economic role in the Chinese economy... And from my observation in the past, it seems to be the state-owned enterprises has now become more like a social institution for China and for the Chinese economy by providing sufficient amount of social welfare for its own employees rather than just become a profitable organization. Um, but secondly, there's also a lot of um, competition within China between the private enterprises and the state-owned enterprises. And if you look, actually look up the technology companies, and most of them, they are private organized companies. I mean, uh, exactly what is a shareholding structure, I'm not sure, but they claim to be private companies and they made up 90%, 90% of China's total employment and 60% of China's tax and revenue. So essentially, they made up a major part of China's economic activity. And then... Uh, the other one which suffered the most from this current round of trade war, because at the end of the day, state-owned enterprises could be bailed out by the state and they could easily borrow money from the states. Whereas for the private companies, and no matter how hard they try, and when it comes to dealing with loans, dealing with debt issues, the other one being targeted and the other one being punished. So given the current round of trade war, there's a lot of intense discussion inside China. How are we going to place the role of the market and the party, essentially, to what extent the party could decide economic activity of the market. I mean, that was the old debate China had back to 1978, and we're now in that turning point of having that very intense debate again. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. Yeah. Well, let's turn to the trade war then. What, I mean, for people who aren't following this closely, what. Does a trade war look like? What are the measures that are put in place by either side? What sort of policies are they are they using? Are they weaponizing as part of this conflict?
2: Again, there have been various responses. Um, on the one hand, the U.S. introduced a variety of tariff measures. Um, one on on that front is the tariffs that have been introduced on steel and aluminum, citing national security considerations. Mm-hmm. But let's also be very clear that those were introduced on a global scale and certain countries got waivers. So even though those measures are aimed at China, they impact a large number of other countries and particularly actually hit the U.S.'s allies, the EU, Japan, Mm -hmm. for example, being um, key. Then particularly with regards to technology transfer issues, the U.S. also introduced multiple rounds of tariffs under the so-called Section 301 of the Trade Act of 1974. China, in return, raised tariffs of its own, so it's very much the tit-for-tat tariff escalation that we saw play out in 2018 and 2019. There have also been disputes launched at the World Trade Organization. And then again, because I mentioned earlier other elements outside of trade, Mm -hmm. it's also on that front that the United States has taken action. So particularly with regards to transactions of foreign investment coming into the United States, uh, the so-called Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, it's called CFIUS, they have had their authority expanded. And China is not mentioned directly as a target, but it's quite clear that concerns about Chinese foreign investment linked to national security considerations are a key driver behind that measure. And then also, let's not forget about Huawei. Mm. And here the Trump administration has very much taken steps to restrict the ability of U.S. firms to engage with Huawei, the Chinese telecommunications giant. Uh, The U.S. administration has also put pressure on allies such as the, you know, the EU or Germany in particular, um, Italy as well, Japan, not to use Huawei's 5G equipment. So again, those steps to me signal that the Trump administration isn't just trying to simply reduce the U.S.'s trade deficit with China, but really is interested in decoupling from China. So really restricting flows of technology, restricting flows of trade, of, of capital, of people. And um, that to me is again, the larger concern. I don't think it's ultimately going to be successful. There's other ways that the US should actually be thinking and acting to get China to change its policies and practices.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, well, we'll come to maybe policy solutions afterwards, but just briefly on that, what is the what are the downsides of decoupling from that?
2: I mean, first of all, the US and Chinese economies are so intertwined that essentially it's not possible to really, you know, Decouple. Right. At the same time, I think it's also very much the U.S. you know imposing self-harm because it does restrict also you know pressure for the U.S. to innovate, but also a lot of U.S. companies very much rely on input from China, and so restricting that also undermines the U.S.'s ability to innovate and to strengthen its own um, technological strength.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. And how has China been conceiving of this trade war? What's been the interpretation of what Trump has been doing?
1: Oh, there's a, all sort of interpretations. I mean, the Chinese are rather surprised by who is actually really giving advice to President Trump. You have obviously a magic seven boys along his cabinet, and we have absolutely no idea you know, whether Trump would take yes for yes and no for no. And secondly, the Chinese are always taking a, a rather philosophical approach about this. Um, every single crisis, and there must be opportunity behind this as well. And if we examine the past history of China in the last hundred years, it has always been the external forces and forced domestic changes and internal changes about China. Now, um, in the past few years, we have this intense debate about where are we heading regarding economic reform, regarding to increasing the role of the market and many liberal-minded um Chinese bureaucrats and intellectuals intelligentsias actually argued that this trade war is a rather unconventional opportunity for China finally to be able to pursue certain economic reforms um certain political elites would hope much hoping to pursue and because because of the external pressures we receive from the United States and its allies so they take this up very positively as being an unconventional opportunity, and therefore, were really much hoping the United States and European Union would insisting on China and changing on China's behavior. So that's the positive scenario. Now, there's also a negative scenario within the Chinese Communist Party. There's all sort of opinions being displayed as well. And there's also certain conservative forces would argue we should really wholeheartedly support this whole ideas of self-reliance as what we had done, what we had done back to 1959. But given where we are now, we're in the age of global economy, everything's so intertwined, it is almost impossible for China and the United States uh, excluded from each other. Um, so that sense of decoupling, yes, um, we are, uh, the Chinese is aware of that decoupling, but to what extent can really Trump's administration putting decoupling into a real implementation? I think there's still um, a distance travel between the rhetoric and the reality. And I think both sides are now trying to watch out each other and exactly try to watch out what the other side want to do and then figure out a strategy to respond. And lastly, what I've noticed even more interesting is this whole narrative about... America, United States, in in the main set of the Chinese population, is a well-respected country since 1949, and it's fine. It is a past enemy, but it's also a really well-respected capitalist country, capitalist superpower. But somehow nowadays, within the Chinese society... The perception towards the United States has shifted, from, shifted quite dramatically from the, you know, from being feel respected, you know, from a kind of respected country, into a country with a irresponsible president with a lot of crimes and the crisis happening. So, um, if we are arguing about different political system, and if you might asking the Chinese on the street whether they would have the confidence towards. The system in the United States, or whether they would have the confidence of the political system inside China, and I think the likely answer would be, perhaps, to have more confidence with the current Chinese system. So, if we are talking about decoupling, and then essentially it is about ideological debate, and I think the Americans will find it uh, rather difficult to win hearts and minds of the Chinese population.
0: Great. Well, maybe let's turn now to how you think this might pan out looking ahead. So obviously, it's difficult to say. And we're in a think tank where we don't like to make too many predictions about where these things are going. And obviously, there's an election next year in the US and all sorts of unknowable things. But in sort of the short term, do you think that there is anything that can be done that would deescalate this confrontation? Or do you do you think this is kind of set in for the foreseeable future?
2: Well, in the very short term, there is the hope of so-called phase one deal between the United States and China that would very much focus on increasing trade and agricultural products from the United States to China and perhaps address some of the issues around intellectual property. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that phase one deal would really address some of the structural issues that we've been talking about. So to me, this really is about a much longer-term strategic, again, competition that has multiple elements of trade, of technology, questions around national security. The United States, in its um, 2017 national security strategy, labeled China a strategic competitor. So I think, again, keeping that in mind, this is not going to be an easy kind of resolution. Mm-hmm. Also keep in mind that a lot of the concerns that the Trump administration has raised with regards to trade and technology and China are shared by Democrats as well. So even if we see a different administration in the White House, the concerns are likely to stay the same. What we might see differently is a different approach, a different method, a different rhetoric perhaps emerge. But again, fundamentally, even a democratic administration in the United States would very much continue to push a tough line on China as would the business community. Again, a lot of the shared concerns are very much um, where there is agreement with President Trump, the disagreement is very much on do the actions actually lead to a desired result. Mm -hmm. I very
1: much share with what Marianne just said. Um, I think we, um, I always argue that this trade war is divided in three parts. The first part is the easiest bit with China, tariff, agricultural product tariff. Second issue is the market access, um, intellectual property protection and whole ideas of subsidies. And the very last one is more to do with the economic structural change of China fundamentally. I think the first and the second element of the trade war, it seems to be easier to negotiate between Beijing and Washington. And in particularly on the first phase, I think part of the reason why China has agreed to buy more agriculture products is also by necessity. Because the issue uh, Chinese government had in the past four or five months is on the skyrocketingly high pork price. And then the United States and Canada used to be a major importer for China's um, pork products. So to some extent, I think it's because of this uh, pork price hike and made China to... Purchasing more agricultural products from the United States and Canada become a necessity. Um, so two sides would have some common ground for negotiation. But given the press release offered by the Ministry of Commerce of China, um, it was a very vague statement. So by judging by that vague sound of a statement, by the vague language, the vocabulary the spokesperson has chosen. And I would consider, yes, we may likely to see a phase one deal at a time when... Donald Trump needed to boost his popularity for yes. the election. Yeah, yeah. But as soon as Trump does not need to have that popularity boost anymore, and the phase one deal could be easily teared up. So the future is not very bright between the two countries, um, especially when it come to the trade negotiation, because the fundamental issue in here is about the way how China is organising economy. It's essentially what America has asked is an economic regime change of China
0: which is a big ask. Now, I'm going to finish with a naive utopian question, but obviously the the title of this paper is about the quest for global technological leadership. Now, to me, that kind of presupposes that there has to be one leader. Is there any scenario where we could see a tech landscape which is mixed, where you have companies such as Facebook sharing space and users and, and money with the likes of WeChat, where you have people buying things on Amazon and Alibaba, is that just complete pipe dream or and or is it something that actually is quite likely to happen
2: on the tech side of things that's certainly feasible and again talking to those in the tech sector that's very much how they see it, that there is still this flow of ideas of you know technology of um, also capital to support yeah. that. Mm-hmm. But I think it really comes down to the political question of to what extent is this going to be desirable or not? And will we ultimately, perhaps, again, given the political context and the geoeconomic and geopolitical environment that we're in, will we see a bifurcation of that system where essentially we are seeing, you know, two technological systems that are not speaking to each other. And again, a system also that very much is about different standards. And that, I think, is is not quite clear yet. It could go either way.
1: Yeah, um, if I may add, I mean, Marianne just mentioned this in terms of standard setting. I think we are in that sense of competition where you have U.S. standard on the one hand. And then on the other hand, the Chinese manufacturers and Chinese participants also try to introduce his own preferred standard to be adapted by whoever the foreign companies would like to operate inside China. So I think we're not just seeing the competition in terms of technology itself, but also that notion of the so-called discursive power in the international affairs, you know, to be able to shape the agenda from the very beginning of the debate, and that really nicely displayed in the space of technology competition. So the discursive power for technology diplomacy is about who is setting the standard and how the standard is being set up and who are the followers for those standards. So over longer term, I think there are going to be two systems coexist. And hopefully that's going to be a peaceful coexistence.
0: I guess we'll wait and see. I'm sure we'll have you on next year to talk about what happened. <laughs> Exciting. OK, well, thank you so much for joining us both, uh, Marianne, Yujia. The paper is called US-China Strategic Competition, the quest for global technological leadership. And it's available now on the Chattermas website.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you.
0: Okay, so now I'm joined down the line from Leicester by Zakia Shiraz. Zakia is a lecturer in international politics at the University of Leicester. And in November, she published with Richard J. Aldrich an article in International Affairs, which is titled Secrecy, Spies and the Global South, Intelligence Studies Beyond the Five Eyes Alliance. Zakia, thank you so much for joining us today.
3: Hi, Ben. Thank you for having me.
0: I wonder if we could just kick off with you explaining the premise of your article. What's the argument?
3: So Richard and I developed this article as a response to a growing interest in intelligence in the global south. And the Arab Spring and managed democracies placed a wider range of secret services under the spotlight. More broadly, since the global war on terror, there's, there's been an increased emphasis on global intelligence partnerships in dealing with global threats. Um, But Richard and I argue that our methods uh, in intelligence studies are tied to these approaches from Western intelligence services and secret services in liberal democracies more broadly. And the article really calls for a re-examination of research strategies for intelligence studies and for those that are trying to theorize surveillance more broadly – Um, And it suggests that we can learn a lot from fields like area studies and development studies, particularly in the field of research practice and ethics.
0: Obviously, in the title, you draw attention to this idea of the Five Eyes Alliance. Could you just tell us what what the Five Eyes is for listeners who might not be aware?
3: So the Five Eyes Alliance is an unprecedented intelligence alliance uh, that includes the UK, US, Australia, Canada and New Zealand and it's a partnership that's based on mutual trust in the face of shared threats from the Cold War and goes back to the 1940s.
0: Okay, great. And and you say it, it has its roots in the Cold War, but it's very much with us today, is it? Is it still very much an active network?
3: It is very much with us today, um, but there is a broader debate of whether the Five Eyes Alliance is fit for purpose um, due to a perception that many countries in the Five Eyes Alliance are now contending with a new homegrown threat of terrorism. And that the Five Eyes Alliance isn't really conducive to dealing with these increasing homegrown threats. And there's also budget cuts and increasing concern about how much money is being spent on intelligence uh, agencies across these different countries. But this question of of need of intelligence services and alliances more broadly, I wouldn't say it's a new issue. Um, And this was certainly the case at the end of the Cold War, when the role and existence of some Western intelligence agencies like the CIA was called into question. So, for example, in 1994, the Dutch Foreign Intelligence Services was officially uh, dissolved. Budget cuts in the UK saw about a 25% decrease in the post-Cold War era. The US intelligence community reduced its size by around 22%. And we know that this was misplaced and due to an optimistic consensus that there would be a reduction of of armed conflict uh, globally, but the Five Eyes Alliance does offer unprecedented um, benefits to its members, but it does have to adapt, I think, to a globalized security landscape that includes countries like Russia and China and most importantly, an almost entirely new domain of cyber threats. So there are difficult trade-offs, but since the 1940s, uh, the Five Eyes Alliance has proved to be an invaluable asset to each of its uh, members in the face of um, foreign crises. And I think that that most people would agree that those foreign crises are unlikely to disappear.
0: As you said in your introduction, what you and Richard are arguing in international affairs is that we need to be paying attention more to the way things are done in intelligence agencies outside of this alliance. I just wondered if, I, if we could just pick up on this idea of the global south, which is used a lot in development debates and, and all sorts of these sorts of conversations, but it always seems to me a relatively vague term. Could you tell us a bit more about like what you mean? Because from what I'm taking from the article, you're not saying there's the five eyes, nations, and then everybody else. What are you talking about when you're saying global south?
3: I think you're right. The global south as a term is increasingly deployed for quite peculiar uh, reasons and to actually describe quite a peculiar mix of countries and regions. Mm. Uh, In the case of our article... We mentioned the Five Eyes, and we, we refer to that, and we refer to the Global South uh, to really talk about intelligence agencies that aren't really talked about. But I think we're also trying to bring in scholarship from the Global South, and the approach from area studies, which I find particularly interesting, interesting, is to look at and to understand the idea of the South as a region of distinctive intellectual production, and a region where there are cultural differences in structures and practices of how intelligence is done.
0: Okay, great. So, Could you tell us a little bit about the history of how intelligence agencies developed in in Latin America?
3: It's quite interesting because revisionist historians have done much to uncover the origins of, of intelligence agencies in Latin America. Historically, they were seen as apprentice agencies of the FBI and CIA, and they were associated with military dictatorships that ruled the region for um, much of the Cold War. And accordingly, the region was part of the third wave of democratization from from around the 1980s and 1990s onwards. Mm. But actually, intelligence ties can be traced right back to the 1930s. And that's not to say that internal concerns and internal security dilemmas weren't important in the creation and establishment of um, of intelligence agencies in Latin America, but actually the perceived threat of right-wing phalangist and Nazi elements in um, political parties in Latin America during the 1930s saw the region reaching out to the U.S. Uh, for support. So, one of the first requests uh, came from Brazil in 1938 to set up a secret service, um, and that was quickly followed up by Colombia. But the Colombian intelligence services weren't actually formally established until uh, the military government of General Gustavo Rojas Pinilla, um, who created the FIC uh, intelligence agency, to respond to their internal security situation following a civil war period from 1948 to 1958, in which about 200,000 Colombians were killed. But by contrast, Argentina's first premier intelligence agency was set up by General Juan Perón in 1946 with the help of former Nazi agents who served in the Secret Service. So we can see a mix of reaching out to, to America to, to establish intelligence agencies in Latin America. But there's also plenty of examples where internal security concerns or even shared security concerns uh, on a global level have led to the creation of these intelligence services.
0: I'd just like to pick up on this idea of a lot of these agencies having their model in the US agencies. Did that mean that in the way that they were structured and their particular practices that they mimicked a lot of what was going on in the US? Or as they developed, did they kind of diverge from the sorts of things the CIA were doing?
3: I think that we can understand the origins of intelligence agencies by looking at these sorts of requests for support But I think importantly, we have to really consider the political context in which these agencies are operating in and what their primary concerns are. And broadly in in Latin America and elsewhere in the global south, we can see that intelligence agencies are strong on the domestic front and are primarily geared to dealing with internal threats. So they often have quite weak external agencies. The model in terms of mimicking the US, I don't actually think that's particularly helpful in us understanding intelligence in the Global South. I think what's quite important also is the degree of democratic development um, in countries in the Global South. And this really plays a central role in intelligence practice and structures. Um, In my research, I've identified six broad trends or characteristics and practices and and structures. One, that intelligence is overwhelmingly about people and domestic security. It often reflects powerful internal security agencies and weak external agencies. Intelligence is closer to political parties and executive power. And this is really important because it inevitably impacts in the kind of oversight mechanisms that you might get. So the CIA, for example, has uh, had a press uh, office in some form since about the late 1940s. Uh, you won't find that in countries in the Global South, for instance. There is, um, I suppose, there's a, a much stronger em- emphasis on secrecy and from the public not really knowing what the intelligence services are doing or what their priorities are. Thirdly, I would say that working relationships are often extensions of particular individual relationships. And this is certainly the case in Latin America where clientelistic politics has resulted in very personal relationships. And this has an impact on who ends up actually being an intelligence leader in any given country. There's often a stronger interest in covert action, disruption and fixing, uh, particularly against dissident groups and organized criminal gangs. Um, and this can be broadly seen as something that's been adopted or pushed by the U.S. in the kingpin strategy in dismantling organized criminal gangs, such as the Medellin cartel, or more recently with El Chapo and the Sinaloa cartel. But importantly, the limited te- technical ability of countries in the global south allows for more individualistic and free-form sharing um, That's devoid of the complex frameworks that you might see in the US or Western intelligence agencies. Finally, I would say that there's really an unspoken animus against developing states in in the global north or Western intelligence agencies. and I think that this is a result of the legacy of external intervention and the involvement of Western intelligence agencies, particularly during the Cold War, that has resulted in intelligence being quite a dirty word in parts of the global South. But also there are divergent priorities between Western states and those in the global south that are at the forefront of global foreign policy initiatives or global wars, such as the global war on terror or the U.S.-led global war on drugs. So there is a collective desire in Latin America and other developing regions to really do intelligence for ourselves rather than having an open reliance on Western intelligence agencies.
0: Within the region in Latin America, are there any nascent alliances that are developing that would be seen as similar to the Five Eyes, or is it very much national-based agencies which are more focused on the domestic situation, as you were describing?
3: The Five Eyes Alliance is an unprecedented intelligence alliance, and it's not going to be replicated elsewhere in the global south for a while, and particularly in Latin America. I would say in Latin America, one of the issues is that regional organizations haven't really been very effective, and there's been various failures around that. And elsewhere, such as in Africa, for example, we can see that regional organizations have been quite prominent in the development of intelligence cooperation. So although intelligence cooperation is nowhere near the sort of level that we will see with the UK-US alliance or with the Five Eyes alliance, in Africa, for example, existing regional economic communities such as ECOWAS in West Africa or IGAD in East Africa have been important in developing intelligence cooperation and intelligence liaison. In Latin America, I would say that the legacy of the Cold War and the the establishment and growth of intelligence agencies in the midst and during um, military dictatorships have meant that intelligence has only really come out of the shadows once the region's security priorities have shifted from counter-communism to counter-narcotics and transnational organized crime. Since about 2012, we've seen numerous agreements between countries that have been announced by press releases. Often you'll find that bilateral agreements are much more common in Latin America rather than more sort of multilateral agreements that we're seeing in parts of Africa. So the most important examples that I would point to are Mexico and Colombia, which are two countries that have perhaps faced unprecedented security problems uh, related to organized crime and more than any other countries um, in the world. So they've shared security personnel between states, most notably um, Oscar Naranco from the Colombian National Police, who went from uh, Bogota to to Mexico City. Um, there wasn't a lot of fanfare with his arrival in Mexico, because I think, again, pointing to that sort of unspoken animus of doing intelligence for ourselves, and probably a reluctance to admit that the Mexico situation has has deteriorated and is increasingly seen as being related to a similar, what is perceived to be similar, uh, a similar situation to what Colombia faced some decades ago. I don't particularly agree with that. I think they are two very different situations. But I think this points to a lack of mutual trust, perhaps, as well. But between the two countries, uh, they've signed agreements that focus on intelligence sharing and, and training on drug smuggling routes, information on targets, and transnational police operations. Colombia also signed a bilateral, binational border security plan with Brazil in attempt to counter drug trafficking, money laundering, human trafficking and terrorism. But I would say that we can expect more bilateral agreements in Latin America than um, multilateral agreements. But I think this broader shift in intelligence cooperation between states in Latin America is also part of a bigger problem in the Americas, which is tied to shifting priorities. So whilst the US has been focused on supply-side reduction with the drug trade, Colombian, Mexican and Brazilian authorities are much more focused on managing dangerous internal threats, such as armed groups or sophisticated criminal networks that have penetrated the state, security services and political parties. And there is... growing regional discontent and growing hostility with current international measures to deal with transnational organized crime, numerous former heads of state from, from Latin America and even former intelligence chiefs from the region have come out and questioned global, the global prohibition paradigm. And in 2013, this group of former intelligence chiefs and heads of states presented a report to Barack Obama at the Organization of American States um, annual meeting in Cartagena in Colombia. And it pointed to the fact that the region has a shared threat in transnational organized crime and the growth of criminal network. But they're actually focusing on two very different things. I think it's important to note that Latin America has enjoyed almost two centuries of independence from its colonial rule. But other regions of the world that are relatively recently decolonized, such as Asia, the Middle East and Africa, uh, we see that colonial constructs and post-imperial legacies play a much more salient role in the establishment and development of intelligence agencies. Um, And there's two quite interesting examples I can point to. The first one is Pakistan's Inter-Service Intelligence, or ISI, uh, the country's military intelligence service, that was arguably a product of a multi-layered imperial legacy. So it was created in 1948 by an Australian army officer, Major General Walter Cawthorn, who'd served in the Indian Army. But then he later declared his allegiance to the newly formed state of, of Pakistan and went on to um, to be involved in in the intelligence services there. Ian Henderson, a British colonial police officer who served in Kenya during the Mau Mau rebellion in 1950s, uh, and was celebrated for that, was later recruited by authorities in Bahrain as a security advisor to the ruling Al Khalifa family and to manage the Bahraini General Directorate for Security state security investigations from 1966, and he went on to stay until um, 1988. So I would say that the origins of intelligence agencies across the Global South do vary. And one of the things that we um highlight in this article is sort of moving away from overly generalizing and I'm aware of the pitfalls of using the global south as a term but we want to sort of avoid the overgeneralization we have been slow in understanding the particular origins of some of the most important intelligence agencies in the global south our research has shown that in fact colonial or post-imperial legacies perceived shared threats like we've seen with the case of um, Latin American states reaching out for help to deal with right-wing phalangist or Nazi elements in their political system, and internal regime security. These are all important in understanding the origins of intelligence agencies across the global south. Mm. But I think it's important to note that as we try and think about intelligence in the future that we we look at our recent past where we can see that intelligence is no longer the sole preserver of states and regional and international organizations such as Mercosur the the almost now defunct trade bloc in in Latin America the, the African Union European Union and most notably the United Nations have become increasingly active in intelligence since the 1990s. In addition to that, private companies, particularly those that have been engaged in commodity extraction across the Global South, they have long maintained significant intelligence capabilities and also really close working relationships with local secret services to ensure that the commodity extraction can take place and that is effective and contributes to their local economy. So similar similar alliances with the Five Eyes, um, they don't exist as as intelligence cooperation in the global south, uh, which I think is a result of internal political developments and a lack of mutual trust between states. But but we're seeing the growth of intelligence cooperation in the global south, but it might not be in the same way in which the Five Eyes alliance emerged during the 1940s.
0: Obviously, a lot of the debate in Europe at the moment and also in the u s is is to do with this new information warfare and disinformation and misinformation campaigns and intervention by foreign powers but also non state actors in things like elections i just wondered whether from your experience in latin america whether you've seen evidence of the impact of the internet and big data and and new technologies generally on how the intelligence services are conducting operations and whether you think it's making their job harder or giving them more tools to work with
3: I think it's making the task a lot more difficult. Latin American states and actually states across the global south are quite unique in the sense that the information age may have arrived a little bit later, but it's actually developed very quickly. Mm. And that in itself has resulted in the security services not really being quite ready to deal with cybersecurity threats. And this is certainly the case uh, for Colombia, which is one of the sort of global hubs of cybercrime. And it's an increasing concern for, for governments and intelligence services. But because of the lack of technical capabilities, this is where intelligence cooperation, particularly between those um, more advanced technological states in the West and those in the global South, will become more important in the future in, in dealing with these threats
0: one final question before we before we wrap up that i had was how do you i know it's obviously very hazardous job to to be in the, in the business of predictions but how do you see the situation developing do you think that agencies In the Global South or in Latin America specifically, is there intention to become more like Western-style intelligence agencies? Or do you think that the divergence that you've already described is kind of embedded and part of the nature of the beast in a way?
3: I think that there is an increasing consensus among among states in the Global South that they're at the forefront of fighting the ills of global wars or the ills of globalization, mm. and that they have to be prepared for these threats. however, I think the shift from domestic to external security threats isn't actually going to happen because I still think that a lot of i think that a lot of countries in the global south are still very much focused on regime security, and this is where democratic development Um, and the degree of democratic development in countries is is really important. Recent research has shown how leaders who are worried about insider threats within their own circle, um, which might typically include senior military leaders, protect themselves, for example, by deploying agencies that are highly fragmented and that are led by family members. And the biggest example that we could point to is Saudi Arabia's National Guard. um, And its main function seems to be to protect the royal family against the armed forces. Mm. Elsewhere in the global south, such as Latin America, countries are still dealing with organized crime, for example, uh, internally. And this is a particular problem when you have huge international measures that are brought in and initiatives to deal with uh, drug production in one country, and what you find is that it increases elsewhere. So there's still this sort of internal focus and internal emphasis in dealing with these very global problems. And I think that this is going to pose problems in, in dealing with global threats, And it it puts a lot of pressure on whether multilateralism is actually working in dealing with these um, security dilemmas.
0: A subject for another day, I guess, the the future of multilateralism. But Zakir um, so Shiraz, thank you so much for joining us today.
3: Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure.
0: And you can read the article, Secrecy, Spies in the Global South, Intelligence Studies Beyond the Five Eyes Alliance, on the International Affairs website now. And that's it for this episode of Undercurrents. In the show notes, you'll be able to find links to both of the papers that we discussed this week if you want to read more. And I'm delighted to say that we have time for one more episode before Christmas is finally upon us. And we will be publishing that next week, so you don't have long to wait. But in the meantime, I'm Ben Horton, and this has been Undercurrents.